I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. Taking a break from New York, conversations up there so far have been great, but this episode I taped at Empire State South, the restaurant I opened up years ago in Midtown Atlanta. This week's guest is one of the final three contestants on Top Chef this season. The finale is on Thursday, March 14th on Bravo. She's Kelsey Barnard-Clark, an amazing young caterer from Dothan, Alabama. Caterer is underselling her, though, as it undersells everybody. She's an amazing chef. She trained at the CIA in Hyde Park. She worked for Gavin Kaysen and Aaron Bludorn at Cafe Baloo. She worked with John Fraser at Dovetail. And then she returned to South Alabama. And she talks in this conversation about why she left New York, the food world there, and never really looked back. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe and listen to some of the other episodes, including Tom Cleggio Heats Up Leftovers, Carla Hall Finds Soul Food, and Alex Stupak Explains Tacos. Also, one announcement. You'll be able to listen to Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot one day earlier on the Himalaya app. So starting next week, new episodes will be airing starting Monday on the Himalaya app, and then Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other podcast apps. Next week's conversation is with New York chef Anita Lowe, who is an amazingly important chef in my world and has written a beautiful, beautiful new book on cooking for oneself called Solo. Um, all right. So here's this week's conversation. Kelsey Bernard Clark makes the Top Chef finals. I am at Empire State South, my restaurant in Atlanta, where we actually have never taped anything before, but I'm, I'm sitting at a corner table before the lunch rush begins with Kelsey Barnard-Clark. And is Kelsey your chef from Dothan? I am. Dothan, Dothan Alabama. Alabama. And you are on the current season 16 of Top Chef, <laughs> yes. which we'll talk about a fair bit. But I just want to talk about your quest in chefdom and how you got here and you went through new york and went to cia and worked a lot of restaurants and then you went back home which i find a really intriguing premise uh, these Mm -hmm. days in food when people return back to their roots and and start something in sometimes a place that's got historical merit in food but doesn't have much in the way that sometimes we do in food right um so tell me about the the tell me about the route that it took back to dothan so i was you know i I was approaching my one-year market dovetail, um, and I was in pastry, and I kind of had these like ticking points that I wanted to do before I was done with New York, and it was I wanted to do pastry and I wanted to do culinary both for Michelin restaurants. Um, and and you'd worked at Cafe Baloo before yeah, with Gavin Case culinary and, there though um, or Sabre, I mean yeah and yeah and so then I did when I got the pastry position at Dovetail, I mean I had no experience and so I was kind of like. This is a long shot, and they were dumb enough to hire me, I guess. But um, yeah, we're, and we're I did smart enough. It smart depends enough, on dumb enough. Yeah, no, I know. I think it was a good call. Um, and I, I just felt after a year, I really, I mean, I guess naively, and also I don't know what the word would be for it. I just really wanted to start my own business. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted yet. I mean, I still am like, do, what do I want? You know, but I just knew I wanted to. It almost felt like I was going to want to get my real life started now. I want to start my businesses. Yeah. And then the possibility of starting a business without a huge amount of cash flow in New York and stuff like that. But, but it's amazing that people now are earning those stripes 
in places like New York and then quickly going back home. It used to be a much, it it was an oddity that people would go back to a dose in Alabama and open up a restaurant. Yeah. Um, I mean, no, that I wouldn't say, especially Dothan is not somewhere you would pick out to open a restaurant. It's not a destination restaurant scene? No, I mean, you know. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about where Dothan is. Um, The best way I could describe Dothan is if you've gone to the beach, almost everyone's like, oh, yeah, I know that place that we We exit sometimes (laughs) and went through a drive-thru. That's Dothan. So um, we're on the... Right on the Florida line. It takes about five minutes for us to get to the Georgia's Florida line. 20 miles away. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll gladly accept Dothan into Georgia okay, if you want us yeah, to. Well, I can do that. We can do Who that. Who do you cheer for in university sports? Alabama. Alabama. Yep. Oh, boy. Well, that's that's, yep. easy, that's easy to cheer for, isn't <laughs> I know. it? Well, I know. So working with people like Gavin Kaysen and then Dovetail is John Frazier. Mm-hmm. Um, those are both amazing, amazing chefs. It's interesting to see that. You know, Gavin, uh, so many years at Cafe Baloo and, uh, under Danielle Baloo. Um, and Danielle's got this empire of traditionalists and French oh, food. Sure. So what'd you learn there that you can take and apply to Southern food? You know, I'm, I'm sort of a person when it comes to food. I like to look at the origin of all of it. Um, so for Southern food, you know, I think to this day, people still don't understand like how much African influence there is in Southern food and all the influences that there are and, and why, why is Southern food, Southern food? How did they become that way? Um, and some people don't like to talk about it. It's not the prettiest way we got there sometimes, but it, at the beginning of almost every food culture, there's some sort of French. Um, and you really can't find, you can't be in a kitchen without French techniques everywhere. So I, I don't know I was always very intrigued by France in general and just the traditionalist of it. I really like that it's classic and you're learning how to cook with pots and pans and knives. And it's not like buttons and electronics. It's very traditional. It's, it's rudimentary. It's, it's a skillfully rudimentary Mm -hmm. in my, in my idea. But yeah, I, I think French technique can be applied to really any cuisine around the world, which does isn't meant to be dismissive of Chinese technique and things like that. That can also be applied. But you know, I come from the same, sort of school of thought that, you know, I'm a Canadian kid who cooks Southern food with French and Italian Mm -hmm. influence. So it's very similar in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, at the same time, I never want to malign Southern food. I don't want to do something (laughs) wrong because it's not my upbringing. I didn't grow up with shrimp and grits. So, but you did. Oh, yeah. So, but do you ever, are you ever nervous about refining Southern food beyond what people in Dothan, Alabama want? No, we do it. I mean, I will say this though. I learned about two years into my first restaurant that you don't get to do what you want to do when you're owning a restaurant. I mean, that's probably the dumbest thing you do going in. I think as anyone who's new opening a business is you're like, I can finally cook the food I want to cook. I mean, if you want to make money, you've got to give people what they want. As so the malaise of modern chef oh, and yeah. young chefs who want to cook for themselves. Like, yeah. Good luck with that. Go guests. home then. Yeah. <laughs> do it in your house. Um, but so, you know, there's things on my menu I said I would never have on my menu. And there are things that I put on there that I thought wouldn't go over well. And now it's our most popular thing. So there's definitely a balance there. Um, I think that was the most fun for with me, like with Top Chef and stuff, is you really do get to cook the food you want to do. And uh, the art of refining anything is 100% got that at, at Cafe Balloon. Because um, they just took everything. was 
typically simple traditional dishes, you know, like French onion soup. And then it doesn't look anything like what you think it is. Um, and it really, that was like the mark for me of starting to think differently about, okay, I can still make these dishes that I love. I can still make the food I love, but it doesn't have to look like that. It doesn't have to be prepared like that. Your grits could be corn, you know, just little ways to think of food differently. And it really got me to start studying what's in the things that I just so, so was used to being, you know, you eat shrimp and grits, you eat this. And it's like, I didn't ever stop to think about what, what is grits? You know, what, what exactly are in the grits that are making them grits and breaking that down? Um, and when I've started to like, think about that was when I really sort of, I guess, discovered how I wanted to cook. Is there a farming community in Tith and this? I mean, obviously that's a huge agrarian area of the, of the country, but is, are there farming that are, is really appealing to you? Are there smaller farms that are raising things? Not, Dothan, not so much because, you know, we have a ton of land, but it's, I mean, we, a significant amount of people in Dothan are professional farmers, but we're the peanut capital of the world. Yeah. So it's mostly cotton and peanuts. Um, you know, we have corn, we have a little bit of stuff like that, but most of these farmers aren't. I mean, that small niche farming industry is really not, it's not the most profitable thing for a lot of people. It's hard How to make money. How far away from you from Auburn? Two hours. Okay. So there's a great farm, pork farm, right out, a pig farm right, right outside of Auburn called Gum Creek. Yeah. I mean, there's Tommy. a ton. Yeah. And then there's, um. So they're, they're good people around yeah. there. But, you know, I found when I opened up five and 10 in Athens, uh, what, like almost 20 years ago. That there was a huge amount of farming. There wasn't farming that was applicable to a small restaurant. Exactly. It was this commodity crop for the most part. Exactly. But they slowly, it slowly changes if you, if you influence demand. Uh, and then it, you know, we, then we opened up a really progressive farmer's market. And suddenly, you know, there's 18 farmers selling there. And so, and new things every year. So it changes. I mean, are you seeing that change in Dothan? 100%. And, you know, I think the biggest change too that people, I think don't get is that, you know, back a few years ago, even it was like, if you saw someone had Cisco and us foods that were carrying your food, you, they automatically in their head related to like, Oh, they're, they're not cooking their food and they're not getting local things, but it's not the case anymore because these companies are carrying local products. So just because you see that truck pull up in front of someone's restaurant doesn't mean they're not using local ingredients. Doesn't mean they're using uh, frozen have, burgers. Yeah, we've got yeah. a food pimp, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's get to call him and get him to do all of our dirty work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different world. So <laughs> yeah. tell me about the call for top chef. They call you and they're like, would you like to do this? Were you immediately intrigued or did you pursue it or? I, so I actually was made it to the final rounds of auditions for last season for Denver. Okay. Um, and I found out I was pregnant and actually then, you know, I was like, I can do this pregnant, Psh, whatever. And they were like, well, you can't cause we won't let you. So I've, I've so many times been like, thank God I did not try to do this pregnant cause you're crazy enough as it is. I don't need to be pumped up with hormones on top chef. But yeah. Um, so, you know, you kind of have these people when you're aud auditioning, you almost get like each person has someone that, I mean, I'm assuming this is how it's working on their side. I was in touch with one person constantly and she's a talent finder. And it almost seems like they pick people. They're like, I want this person on top chef. So my person and I was also Eric's person. And I guess she recruited us really hard. And so then she called me this year and was like, okay, audition start yesterday or tomorrow you already have all your stuff in from last year. And then she kind of coached me through the rest of it, but it was pretty easy audition process for me. 
Yeah, I mean, I I never did Top Chef. I mean, I, I was a judge, but uh, I I said no many times just because I was too busy. I and mean, I had oh, yeah. it was my first restaurant at the time, and you know, uh, I wasn't having a baby, but my my wife was having a baby. Uh-huh. So, how old is your baby now? He'll be two in June. That's awesome. What's yeah. his name? Monroe. Monroe. Very mm-hmm. cool. Um, but yeah, the the idea of that putting yourself into that sort of cage match of competitive cooking. I don't know. For for me, though, I judge and I've been associated with it. It's never been. I'm not that competitive, <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. But what's so? What's the drive in you to make you want to do that? Well, per, I mean, you know, we spent a ton of time, all of us, talking about that. And for me personally, I think it was different because I'm in a very small town and a very small town community. I don't even get to have conversations about food with people around me. You know, that's the thing I missed and crave more than anything is I'm sort of on this island by myself now. Like if I, you know, if I need any kind of advice about running a restaurant or a food dish, I have to pick up the phone and call someone. I can't get inspiration from the people in my restaurant with me. I mean, it's so different than being in somewhere like New York City where you're constantly things turn at your face. You're always inspired. I had to really work hard at it. Um, and so for me, this was an opportunity that, I don't get, I don't get opportunities. Just, you know, a food critic comes in my restaurant and eats my food and then I'm going to make it. It, That just is not something that's going to happen for me where I am. So this is a way to kind of get me out there in a bigger, broader spectrum. Yeah. It develops your network and people who are going through the same things. I mean, anybody who's not a chef running their own restaurant just can never really understand the pressures and trials and tribulations and finding mentors who you can talk to about it. Uh, is an amazingly important part of it. Right. So it's it's interesting. So tell me the tell me a tell me a supreme high in so far in the season of Top Chef, and then a supreme low. Whew. There's been a lot of highs and a lot of lows. <laughs> I feel like my You're life still is on it. Though. Yeah, I'm still on it. So when, when's the finale? Finale is Thursday, March 14th. There you go. Coming up. Yep, two days. And we and can say to... that you were in the finale. I am. We can say that you're I in am. Macau. We can say that the ingredients are really good. Yeah, we can, can't say I much can more do, than I guess that. a little, a little hints at what I will be cooking for the finale. It will be southern. <laughs> southern, southern Asian. Uh, you know, the only thing they really told us about the finale meal was. It was like the one challenge they were like, we don't really necessarily. I mean, they obviously wanted us to use local things, but they were more like, we want you to cook your food. This is the the meal of your life type thing. So they were less concerned about us being influenced by where we were and more concerned about it being like, I can close my eyes and know Kelsey made that. Right. And what's her story about it? They wanted yeah. it to be super heartfelt and... You know, that's, but they told us all this before. Okay. We th- but that's China. an interesting thing is, is, is that meal is, is always sort of preconditioned as, you know, you're going to be judged on making the meal of your life, telling mm-hmm. your story. Exactly. So what do you want to tell in a story in a meal? Because that's a really interesting thing, because I think that the best food pulls at the heartstrings of a narrative that, that leads people to understand who you are and where you've been. So what's that story? So I think. I could speak for all 15 people of my season when I say that we were thinking of our finale meal before we went to Top Chef. It was yeah, like, what okay. would you do? But the scariest thing, we all had this conversation of like, when do you know to save that dish for your finale or do we do it for this challenge? And that was what was like very challenging through the season was 
you get to the, you know, for me, you get to the end and I'm like, well, crap, I've done a lot of the things I thought I would do. Yeah. And so we got a two week break between Kentucky and China. And I just really, honestly, I read a ton about the history of Southern cuisine. I kind of became obsessed with it. And then every time I would read something that would trigger a memory for me, I'd write down the memory. Um, and then I just kind of went and I had like six bullet points of the fondest memories for me where it involved um, Southern cuisine. And those, when I kind of, I called a few people, a few friends, Gavin was actually one of them, and was like, okay, this is sort of what I'm thinking. What what sticks out to you when I'm talking about it? And I just started narrowing it down of which ones I thought were the most memorable because really that's what matters memorable to someone else how well is it going to be translated on a plate if you don't really know me and you're eating it are you going to understand what i'm talking about or is it such a memory for me that you're just like i don't know what you're talking about this is in your head yeah it's funny that uh, like explaining yourself through food is sometimes easier for me i'm a buffoon a lot of the time mm-hmm. with words um but when i cook food that means a lot to me it immediately can be so expressive and understanding to people to show you know, this is hinting at the Canadian background, but this is hinting at the community where I live. And, and they immediately understand that. And exactly. it's something I can't often put into words, it's, but I yeah. can put into food. <laughs> That's cool. So tell me about Macau. What is Macau just like? Uh, I always picture Macau as one big casino. Yeah, Las Vegas of China. Is that pretty much it? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Were there good restaurants there? Yeah. I mean, great food. And it was. it's really interesting, though, because... You know, when we were there, we went to the Portuguese side, which is very, the Portuguese population is almost gone at this point, but they've really, there's one little area that we went to and it was so crazy because you literally, you know, you're in China and everything is very much Chinese. And then you go on these one little streets and it's like you're in Portugal. It's like you're in it's Lisbon so or, or Porto it or is, something. You know, you're sitting there like, what is going on? There's, that's a tapas bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was totally different totally different vibe um and totally different food i mean they no i mean they still they have i mean they have some portuguese things but it's it's very much a fusion yeah um you're not gonna lose china and yeah yeah <laughs> it's kind of overwhelming yeah. that's cool What would it be like if we all listened more? Listening to audiobooks inspires us, motivates us, and even brings us closer together. At least it brings us more knowledge. And there's no better place to listen than Audible. Get your first audiobook free along with two selected Audible original titles and exclusive fitness programs when you start a 30-day trial. So take the time to listen on Audible. Just visit audible.com backslash Hugh, H-U-G-H, and get listening. So tell me about, I mean, did you enjoy working in New York? Did you enjoy living in New York? Was it a trial and tribulation to get through every day? I mean, working at places like Cafe Baloo on, you know, whatever you're making or working at Dovetail... I mean, those are challenging hours and 70-hour weeks, and were you living right in the city? Yeah, so when I decided to go to culinary school, my mindset was like, I'm not doing this for fun, so 
I'm just going to get everything out of all of this that I can. It never was about fun for me. I hey, never... for everybody out there, that's the best culinary school advice you can get, right. which is you need to take this really like seriously and use it as a stepping stone to a real career. 100%. Yeah. And for, I mean, of course I did have fun. That, that normally is not a problem for me, but you know, in culinary school, I was like, I want to be in every single club. I want to go to every single speech and speaker that they have. I mean, I really was obsessed. And then kind of the same thing when I got to cafe blue, I was like, I want the best externship. And when I get the externship, I want them to remember me when I leave. Um, because I worked harder I was different, whatever it was. I wanted to work harder. And, you know, it was a wonderful time at Cafe Blue when I was there because it was just stacked. I mean, not that it never isn't, but it was Aaron Bluedorn. It was Travis. Basically, the chefs that were there are now running all of Blue's Empire. Blue's Empire. Yep. Um, Gavin was exec, Aaron Chambers, Aaron Bluedorn, Travis Swigard, Um, And they were all line cooks for the most part. So. What was the succession after Gavin left? Did Aaron take over immediately? Aaron, it was Aaron. Okay, mm-hmm. so Aaron's been there for a long time. Aaron was on the show. Aaron Bluedorn, uh, who's the executive chef at Cafe Blue, was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he's just an amazingly interesting and so nice, nice, so and, nice, but energetic yeah. and oh, yeah. congen- but authentic and oh, yeah. real, and uh, just has a I don't know, just has a disposition that I really. I really like, but then Gavin. And then before that was Andrew Carmelini. Mm-hmm. I mean, that place is just this bastion of a powerhouse oh, yeah. in the probably least fancified of the blue restaurants. It's, it's funny that, that he's got that core team. And he's always had those core teams there. Um, so back to Dothan mm-hmm. and business there. So you open up a restaurant. Now, now the restaurant is a catering company. It's kind of a shop and a restaurant and it's called KBC. Yep. And but the hours are really limited. Tell me what what's the logic? So the hours are what? Um. So we're open. You know, we're open Monday through Saturday. Um. Every day for lunch. Saturdays we have brunch, and then we started opening for suppers while I was on Top Chef. Okay. Um. And we do Wednesday Thursdays because we've had. I cannot stand inconsistency with people's hours, specifically restaurants. It just and our town is notorious for like we're just not going to open today. I'm not playing that game. So we, I was a catering company first and we had a significant amount of people that had already rented out our building. Cause we have a venue. It's huge upstairs, downstairs for rehearsal dinners and weddings. And I was like, we can't, I'm not going to open Wednesday through Saturday for supper and then say, except for these 75 Fridays and Saturdays for the next few months. It doesn't, uh, it's not very conducive. Yeah. To and then in April and May we are in wedding season and it would basically be, two months of just being closed on a Friday and Saturday for weddings. So now we've, we've renovated our upstairs. So we're only running the upstairs out for 2019, 2020. So that will be open Wednesday through Saturday for suppers. If it goes well, we'll open Tuesday. If it goes even better, we'll do Monday, you know, that's great. But it also seems to be, you've created a a business that is possible (laughs) with having you know, a family oh, yeah. and dogs and in a small town and what's economically viable in that small town, you know, it, which is things we need to think about all the time. You know, most of my restaurants are in Athens, Georgia, which is a small town as well. Mm-hmm. And I just have to be much more cognizant that I just don't have lineups of people outside the door all right. the time. So we have to be smart economically to get through. Oh, but, I mean that first of all, as much as, 
you know, I never wanted, after doing my stint in New York, I was like, this is not, I mean, it's feasible for some people, but for me, uh, for, for what I want to do, I just was like, I can't have a restaurant that's open till midnight and I'm at work till 2 a.m. Like, I want to have a family. I want to be a mother. Um, I want that to be a priority as well. And I don't want to be up at the restaurant till 2 a.m. Uh, but I think, I think that, uh, the respect for that choice, I don't think there was a respect for it before. I think there's a newfound respect for carving out within the industry the life you want to have. Oh, yeah. I don't think we're being pushed into this. You have to work 90 hours a week thing anymore. I think that there is an ability to craft, uh, it, to create within the industry what you want to do. I think Sean Brock's most recent episode on Chef's Table mm-hmm. was really interesting to say that, you know, after years of working so hard, he's finally found peace in the fact that he can do other things that are still applicable to his job as a chef, but they may be tuning a guitar and playing that or or something like that, but living a life that makes him happy because that's going to make him more productive in the hours that he's actually working. I completely agree. And I think what I thought about is being a chef is such a weird career path. I mean, it's hard for me to even have conversations with my friends about it because like, you know, at the end of the day, people say, oh, well, it's just a job. I'm like, well, it's not just a job if you are someone like a chef that's it's an encompassing passion. It's a very it, passionate job. Yeah, and it can take over your mind, take over your life. One bad review will ruin your year. Um, and it's so, we're typically, chefs are very passionate people, and I'm certainly one of them. So, the passion can drive you down a path of despair as oh, well. It just like a, a sinkhole of just. And so for me, I, I was like that in New York. I was. I mean, when I first got back, I would easily say I was a tyrant to work for. I mean, I just was really harsh um, because I that was obsessed. That's all I cared about. And then I just kind of was like, I don't need to have this one thing only that I'm obsessed with. Like, it's almost like it was an addiction. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I'm going to do lunch and we, we will cater and then we'll baby step this. Yeah. Um, and it's worked. It's worked for me. It wouldn't work for everyone, but. Now and I it wouldn't work balance. everywhere, but it works in exactly. Dothan, Alabama. Exactly. And I'm very familiar with the southern landscape of the small town and how those things work within them. So hats off to you for making it work Thanks. there. So who is the chef on Top Chef that you most found an affinity for? And uh, what, like, who cooks in a different way than you do that you found like we're always looking at the plates of and saying, that's pretty cool? Uh, you know, I could, I could say that about almost everyone I was with, but it, it's a very weird thing on top chef because if you get eliminated early, we really don't spend a whole lot of time together at all. So if, you know, unfortunately like Caitlin and Natalie, you know, the first two, three that went home, I hardly got to know them because they were there for like four days a week and then they're gone. Yeah. And you see them cook one dish and then, you know, it just, it sucks in that respect. So obviously for me, the people that were towards the end with me were the people that I, um, got to know the best and then got to know their food the best. So, so the last people, which was Sarah, Eric, Adrian, Michelle, Justin, who am I missing? Eddie. Those, those I would say I related to the most, but Justin cooked Southern food. Sarah cooked Southern food. I cooked Southern food and we all made it to, you know, to the end for the most part. So I would say us three. Um, Did you make grits? 
I never made grits. Good call. Yeah, no, I never did. Actually, grits is like the polenta of Top Chef. Risotto. It's usually Don't yeah, make risotto. risotto. It's like it's a failure. I, I never the did. Gate. I never did. Um, yeah, so I I always like to look at Sarah and Justin's dishes because they were doing things that I thought of in a different way. So I always really like to see like, oh, that's really cool. Never thought about doing. XYZ Southern dish and doing it the way that you just did it. But that's one of the best things about being on the top chef is that it's, it's to me, it's like taking two years of travel and just going to restaurants. You see all these different perspectives on being a chef, which only makes you a better chef. Cause sometimes you see somebody making a horrible mistake and you're like, I ain't never doing that. Uh I'm never doing that. But other times you look like, look at something and like next, when you get back, you're like, you've incorporated an idea into your menu uh, and giving credence to where you learned it. And yeah, that's I totally need, cool. Yeah, I need to write them all a thank you letter for inspiring yeah, my yeah. whole like, next five years. Yeah. I mean, there were some dishes that blew my mind. Like David made this leek pasta for a quick fire, and I was it blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, it was really cool. Like little things that I've never thought of, and now I'm 100% copying some of the things they did. Not copying, but... Well, yeah, we're all uh, copying in Yeah, food. we are. We I are. mean, there's like three chefs in the world who are not copying yeah. things in food, exactly. and the rest are. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think that you and I have a kinship in, we're not, I'm not trying to create something completely new. I'm trying to refine age old ideas of food that makes sense. A hundred percent. I believe that the South always has a firm idea of no matter who the palate is in the South, that they have this understanding of food that goes together well historically and they want you to kind of follow that mm-hmm. realm still oh, yeah. so they're they're not as risk-taking as uh, other parts of the country well and the south is weird i mean in the best way it's like do not mess with some of these recipes you know don't put sugar in grits don't you know just like these little things that why do people do you put sugar in cornbread no, no. a cornbread i have two cornbreads i have like a sweet one and then I have a savory one, but it depends on what I'm doing with it. Yeah, you know? I, I, I I used to be like no corn, no sugar and cornbread ever. Now I can understand. I mean, I can understand a little bit of it, it and it does depend on what it's being served with. Yeah. Uh, but then if you're cutting it and then griddling it, a little bit of sugar in there is going to make it caramelize beautifully. So yeah, it's each to their own. But the saccharin sweet, uh, like looks like a cake. That's not cornbread. No, That's not cool. I'm not a fan either. That's not cool. No. Not at all. When I go places and they have it, I'm like, you're dead to me. I'm kidding. <laughs> so you come out of Top Chef. You're doing all this thing. What I mean, you know, look, life plans as chefs is like, I don't know where I'm going uh-huh. next. I mean, I, you know, I've got what I've got and I write books. I, I don't know. What, what do you want to do next with it? I, I mean, I'd love – I really enjoy – the TV world. And I really enjoy talking to people and meeting people. I'm very social. So I'd love to be on that path somehow, whether it's cookbooks, a show, doing judging. I don't know. I'd love being in that world. Um, I find it very interesting. And it's also a way for me to have kind of the best of both worlds. I could have my little small town life, but then like leave all the time. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, to me, uh, I had a, I've got a friend who is very astute with these things. He's like, you know, cookbook, or a book becomes a bigger business card than your business card. And then TV becomes an even bigger business card right. than that. And the funny thing is it occupies a very small amount of our time professionally. But it allows us and blesses us with opportunities to go forward and build the life that you kind of want to. 
Um, but you know, I see a lot of people grasping for the stars, right? Uh, right after being on a show like that and, and kind of, oh, trying for the over grab on what they want to do. Um, and you see some of them and they're just, they, they don't become the humans that I think they want to be. So I think it's important to just be you always. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I think I actually said this a few times and I, I think it, I think having your own restaurant is a big up when you're going into Top Chef because you, you've had a significant amount of time where you've had to figure out who you are, um, at least a little bit. So I think that that's something that, you know, I didn't have this question mark of what is my food? What do I do? We're going to eat some food. We just got some food at Empire State South. Um, yeah, this is kind of uh, a big spread. It looks great. What's this one? Oh, I believe that's the That's the gnocchi. And this is the farm egg, which is kind of our ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of based on a uh, a Vietnamese uh, crisp rice dish with sausage that I had once had, actually in Las Vegas, of all places, um, at Lotus of Siam. But you break the yolk, and it's a sous vide egg, and you kind of coax it in, and there's a puree at the bottom. Awesome. And then this is just a selection of dips. So there's a fish mousseline, there's a riette, there's pimento cheese, bacon marmalade, and there's baba ganoush uh, and pickles. And then Yum. this is a, a simple gnocchi with pepitas. Um, so this yeah, almost looks like a Hoppin' John. It, it kind of is, but it's crisp, yeah. so it's like entirely textural. But dig in, eat some food, okay. relax. So Empire State South is like the same with yours type of stuff. It's just meant to be modernist mm-hmm. sort of Southern food. At the end of the day, so what do you want? What's what's what are you excited about cooking now? Um, you know. I really was inspired by China, and then I actually spent two weeks in Vietnam after the show was all done. So I was like, I mean, if I'm going to fly somewhere for three days, and you know, so I flying to China for three days sounds torturous. Yeah, so you stayed and went to Vietnam for two weeks. Yeah, that's um, great. Stayed over there for two weeks, and I love Vietnamese food. That is, I think Donald Trump was just there. He loves Vietnamese food too. Hmm. No, I don't really think that's true. Yeah, I don't. I, I think don't they care. probably flew him in a big probably, Mac. I don't really. Yeah, Donald yeah. Trump. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to ask him his opinion on food. All that's all. I'm no, saying. I don't think he's a. He's not an expert on food. Mm, no. Um, that's delicious. <clears throat> I love the crunch. It's funny. It was conceived by Ryan Smith, who's the chef at Staple House, and I years back. And it's the one thing that's been on the menu. That and the jars. The whole way through. So there's the always a rendition. You kind of overcook it. It's Carolina Gold that you overcook mm-hmm. and then you dry it, spread it and dry it and then you fry it. Yum. Yeah, it's good. And then it has made sausage and uh, uh, crisp greens, some turnips. Um, but yeah. But, you know, pushing the envelope of food is always, is always, but, you know, this dish never comes to fruition unless Ryan and I sit down before a night of blackjack in Vegas and eat at Lotus Asylum and be like, this is such a good thing. And then the next step is, wait a minute, how do we do this in our style? How do we take this dish oh, yeah. that means so much to us and turn it on its head a little bit to be evocative of what we do and the place where we come from? And that's always like that to me is the fun challenge is finding something you love and then turning it on its head a little bit. Oh, com- completely. I mean, 
that, you know, that's when I was the challenge from two weeks ago that I won, you know, it's a Chinese new year. And so for me, new year's was black eyed peas, collard greens, ham, it's year of the pig, you have to use pork. And so I did it in the style of ramen almost. So it was like a broth. The most important part of the dish was the pot liquor where like in the South, I mean, some people don't even eat it or drink it, but I, I do. I do too. It's the best part. It's the best part. Um, so pot liquor, for those who don't understand what we're talking about, is the residue liquid after you cook collard greens. Um, it's kind of got a smoky elixir-like consomme oh, yeah. broth kind of character. Um, and it is it is a really important flavor in Southern food, um, but something that gets left behind by a lot of people that we don't, we don't understand those people, and they're not our people. They're not our friends. They're not our friends. <laughs> Tell me about the food in Alabama overall. My one of my um, biggest mentors of all time is Frank Stitt. Oh yeah, this food's amazing. He was a brilliant chef who worked at Shape and Eastwood back in the day, but had had Harlot Highlands Bar and Grill for years and years and years, and went over to France when he was really young and lived with Richard Olney and cooked with him and wrote one of the seminal cookbooks of all time, but. Uh, Frank's a gem. No, I was actually in his restaurant three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Um, I went to Hot and Hot, Chris Hastings, yep. and then we went to Highlands after. Um, that coconut cake at Highlands blows my mind every time. She is amazing. She it's won a beard award last year. I know, year. I made my uh, whole year for as her. As pastry chef. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a really amazing, amazing People, which, you know, again, points to, could you have had, I mean, Frank was way ahead of his time traveling the world, working at amazing restaurants and going back home. He kind of started that in the South and then Ben and Karen Barker, Mm -hmm. um, rest in peace, Karen Barker. She passed away recently. Um, and, but, uh, in, they were at Magnolia and Durham, um, those are really important restaurants. There were a couple of restaurateurs in Charleston, chefs in Charleston doing the same thing, Peninsula Grill, places like that. They're really these, but you know, I don't include Charleston because it's such a tourist based economy that that was always possible there. Exactly. But I didn't think it was possible in Durham 30 years ago to do what they did, the Barkers, or what Frank did in Birmingham, oh, which yeah. is I mean, Birmingham not a cosmopolitan city, yeah. but now it, it now is an amazing city for food due yeah. to that pedigree that he started there. So, has Dothan, since you've opened there and been operational, have you? Are you seeing the food scene um, change in Dothan? Yeah. So you know, it's actually interesting. I'm super invested in our downtown. Um, we have it's Foster Street is the street, and it's a very historic area. All of our buildings are historic buildings. Um, and ten years ago, you wouldn't go downtown. No one went down there. There was nothing there. You know, 60 years ago, it's where you went to shop. And it's just interesting. Everyone vacated and you don't, it was like, you don't go down there. And now I have a restaurant down there and, and it's just like, you're slowly seeing these places pop up. And I mean, my goal for me for Dothan would be, there's no reason why we couldn't make it a little Birmingham. It's a great place to live. It costs like nothing to live there. You're an hour and a half from the beach. Three hours from Atlanta, you're really close to everything. We you're have an selling dose into the know, world right, right now. Um, but to my point is, is it's. It, I think anywhere can be 
Charleston. Anywhere can be these Birmingham, southern places that have blown up. It just takes the right people to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that, you know, I opened up 5 and 10, 20 years ago in Athens. Everybody thought I was crazy. Exactly. And now, you know, and you'll notice this soon, like after a decade goes by, you suddenly look around and there are two or three more restaurants that weren't there before and they're all people who once worked with you. Yeah. And and it's a good thing. But the important thing is to encourage that and never get sort of bristly about it, Um, you know, because people come and go and it's fine. If they learn from you and they want to move on and do it for themselves, that's great. Mm -hmm. So that encourages the community of food around you. But, yeah, so where are you at in 20 years? Where am I? Yeah, what do you think you're doing? I don't know. I mean, that's – I never thought I would be in the finale of Top Chef five years ago. I wouldn't have been in my five-year plan necessarily. So, I mean, I I would like to be – more than anything, I'd I'd like to be out there doing things, more restaurants, more concepts. Ideally, a restaurant down at the beach. We work there a lot. and, yeah, I, I have no intentions of stopping and slowing down or being done with one restaurant. I, I have some things in my pocket that I'd like to pull out. I say a lot of the times I just want to be a dental hygienist because this job is infuriating. But, I, yeah. you know, most of the time I stick with it. I it's mean, all good. At least once a week I'm like, what would what it be like to have a clock-in, clock-out job? Yeah. You know, not, just yeah. put the card in, leave, go Dolly home. Parton playing in the background, nine to five. Yeah, We've mean, got no worries in the world. I could be a banker. I could just, you know, do something that I can go and then leave. No. Yeah, I, I kind of, I encapsulate the restaurant world as they're kind of emergency rooms of hospitality. Every yeah, day a restaurant a is different and you've got a triage. But you got to be happy triaging. So the best chefs are the people who can walk into their restaurants and be like, that needs to be done, that needs to be done, that needs to be done, that's broken, no big deal, let's make the list and uh-huh. get through it. Someday the list is monumentally impossible looking, and some days it's like, eh, too bad. So, I mean, that's, if anything, I've, you know, my restaurant's been open six years, and I still laugh sometimes, like in the very beginning, the things that I would lose sleep over and freak out about at night, I don't even like blink at it anymore. Yeah, exactly. You get used to it, the stress of it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, hey, whatever. whatever. You know, yeah. That's why I was like, you make you make it seem easy being a mom. And I was like, because everything, like if I freaked out about all these little things, I would be a ball of nerves all the time. So then it's like, eh, I've got poop on me. Yeah, eh. yeah no biggie. Eh. Yeah. has happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, do you want to write books? Yeah, I'd love to. I that's love good. to write, actually. That was something that I love writing about food, reading. That's my only, my only thing with cookbooks is I implore people to write their own book, tell their own story. Oh yeah. Don't get a ghostwriter. Um, just tell it, but it's a lot of work. You know, at first, my first cookbook, I thought, Oh, this would be easy. I just have to, Put the restaurants and take some or pictures. the recipes in home format. Uh-huh. It'll be fun. Take some pictures yeah, and we're done. Whatever. It's not not uh-uh. really like that. No. So, well, good luck with all of it, Kelsey. Thank and you. uh, you're you're, for you're killing me. it. Thanks and so uh, much. good luck on the finale of Top Chef. It's coming up. And uh, good luck in Dothan, Alabama. Thank you. Thanks for being here. This episode of Hugh Atchison's Stirs the Pot was taped on location at Empire State South in Midtown Atlanta. Scott Porch produces the show for Himalaya Media with sound design by Alex Ramsey and editing by Mackenzie Mazell. Please follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, write and review. 
on your podcast app. Click that five star. And come back on Tuesdays for new episodes, except on the Himalaya app, where you can come back on Mondays. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram, at Hugh Atchison. If you see me in the grocery store, don't judge me by my cart. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Peace well. <laughs>